Father, we lay our needs before you and ask you for this period to let us set them aside because we're coming back to your word and we want to give full attendance to it. Um, This is not to say that our needs are not serious and significant. It is to say that your word is greater than anything we can be confronting in this in this hour so if we can if you will give us hearts that are fully attentive to your word not to what i'm saying but to your word and use use it through your spirit to produce the likeness of christ in us for jesus sake we pray amen okay i i don't remember gosh it's been what three weeks since we were together yeah and i don't remember where we stopped so i'm going to pick it up here well, in Hebrews? We were in Hebrews? What were we doing in Hebrews? We've been talking about fish in Romans 3. Well, I know it. We took a detour. Okay, yeah, okay. Did we, did we satisfy that issue? Oh, yeah. All right. <laughs> ah, see where he is. Bad, bad brother-in-law. <laughs> um, beginning, according to this outline, beginning in, in 321 and going through the end of chapter 5, the argument that Paul is giving us is that uh, righteousness now is by faith. He's been saying it's not by works. Now he's going he's gonna to affirm that it's by faith. We've dealt with the first part of this section in chapter two, uh, 321 to twenty. Six. I'm not sure that we have uh, dealt with 27 uh, to 30 in chapter 3. But just to review, we are, we are declared righteous, verse 22. We are declared, I'm sorry, uh, verse uh, 24. We are declared righteous. That is, God has declared that we have right relationship with him. And it's freely done. That is, without our paying for it. There is, there is no cause within us. For him to do that—that's what that word "freely" entails. Second um, Thessalonians three, Paul reminds the Thessalonians of the pattern he gave to them that I didn't eat any man's bread without paying for it. And in John fifteen, they hated me without a cause. Uh, so there's no cause in Jesus that would inherently lead people to hate him. Does this make sense to you? So. When he says we're we're just we're declared righteous, declared having right relationship with God, with no cause within ourselves, and without our paying for it, and it's accomplished, as he says here in verse uh, uh, twenty-four, through faith. Now I don't want to get too Calvinistic on you, because <clears throat> some of you, your poor Arminian hearts, can't handle it. But uh, and that was supposed to be a joke. <laughs> I, I was hoping you'd take it that way. But in, in Philippians one twenty-nine. Turn there. Philippians 1.29. Yeah. Uh, Something is given to us. What is given to us? Faith. Faith. Who gave us faith? God. Faith is a gift of God. It is not something that you originate if you are a person of faith, it is because God has given you faith. He's not only given you that in verse 29, he's also given you the, the privilege of suffering for Jesus' sake. 
So, and that word, do you have faith in, in Philippians 129? Believing, uh, to believe, yeah. Uh, this is a verbal noun. It's an odd, odd construction. It occurs a few times in the New Testament. So what God has done is he's not just given us faith. He has given us believing and suffering for his sake. The gift is twofold, believing and suffering. Right. So even faith is not something that is a cause of our justification. It is the means of our justification. God has given us faith, and he has made it possible for sinful but believing people to be right with him by the redemption that's in Christ Jesus. So redemption and and his work in propitiation, that is, turning away God's wrath by removing our defilement uh, through the work of Jesus so that he can declare us right. We are in the right. We have right relationship with him. And it's critical, from my point of view, uh, in Romans, it's critical that you substitute right relationship for righteousness and not obedience. Okay. What word did you use? You said faith is not the something of righteousness, but it's the means yeah. of righteousness. Yeah, it's, it's, it's not a cause within us that God would declare us righteous. It is his gift to us that, that constitutes our right relationship with himself. Um, so, um, um, verses 25 and 26 point out two fundamental ideas. Uh, God set him forth as a propitiation through faith in his blood. And, and the first of the two critical ideas in verse 25 is uh, because of the passing over of sins committed beforehand in the forbearance of God. Um, I don't know whether we've actually dealt with this. Folks, let me, let me give you two stories from the Old Testament, both of which you know. But um, they're both about sin. One is really, really bad. And the other is, is just minor. Okay? Are you with me here? The one that's really, really bad is Adam's eating a piece of fruit. My favorite professor said, it is not clear what Eve fed Adam, but the one thing that is clear is that whatever it was that he ate has disagreed with the human race ever since. <laughs> How bad is the sin of eating the fruit in the garden? Well, from a, from a normal human perspective, just jumping the fence and getting some, a piece of fruit, is not a terrible offense. Yes? Except that God condemned Adam and Eve and all of their descendants to death in perpetuity. <laughs> How bad is that sin? Well, it must be really bad. The other one that's not, not that big a sin, okay, is uh, uh, David with Bathsheba. You know why I know that that's not that big a sin? What, what the law required... Well, yeah, two things there. Thank you for reminding me of that. Uh, what the law requires for this act is the death of the man who did it. It requires that. Does David die? No, not for that. 
and the baby died, and you will say, well, that's, that's pretty bad. And I'll say, yes, it's pretty bad. But, you know, if the average judge in Shelby County had a, a criminal before the bench in a capital case, and he said, okay, you're guilty, uh, I pronounce, uh, now I've given the, I've given the, the uh, decision of the jury, you're guilty, and I'm now going to pronounce judgment on you, and the judgment is, we're going to take your firstborn child and kill him. What would you say about that? There's something wrong with the judge. Mm-hmm. Yes? So how come it's okay in David's case? So does God favor kings but not commoners? And the answer is the cross. Um, it is now the heir of David who goes to the cross and bears the penalty for David's sin. And indeed, the penalty for Adam's sin. Does this make sense to you? Um, so, so, and I'm not even going to get into the issue of limited atonement. It's a, it's a seedbed of controversy, and it doesn't amount to anything. The, the issue is a dead letter from my point of view. I, I don't even think about that question anymore. Uh, not because I, I believe in universal atonement, but, but for a different reason altogether. In, in case that's what's in, in your mind. Um, so Jesus is the preeminent king. He's a greater king than David ever will be. Yes? yes. But that king is the one that was executed for David's sin. See, because, so verse 25, in the passing over of sins committed beforehand in the forbearance of God. Um why did God not execute David? Because God had plans for Israel and for us that would have been finished if he had executed David because Solomon wasn't born yet. Yes? Mm-hmm. Right? So God, for proper reasons, may simply forego or delay a judgment. And that's not a matter of injustice with God, but the cross is the final proof of that. You see the point. And then verse 26 goes on, for the demonstration of his righteousness in the present time. And and uh, I've mentioned several times a commentary on Romans by uh, C.E.B. Cranfield. Uh, uh, Cranfield argues that we probably ought to re- read the rest of this verse so that he might be just, even though he justifies the one who has faith in Jesus. A court that would have all the evidence of the crime before it. Yes? The jury evaluates the evidence and finds the the uh, accused guilty. Yes? And yet will pronounce him righteous is unjust. We, we've just it's worse than what we said about David and Adam. Does this make sense to you? It's not only that they refuse to execute him and execute somebody else, it's that they now are declaring a wicked person righteous. Well, how can you do that? Uh, that's, you see, the, 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 the crucifixion of Jesus is the vindication of God's justice 
in his treatment of all sin. So those who seek refuge in Jesus are able to, to be pronounced righteous and have relationship with God and live forever. Those who refuse refuge in Jesus um, have the penalty of the, of the crime visited upon them. Does this make sense to you? So the cross becomes the, the preeminent evidence that we are not righteous by our works. <laughs> uh, uh, he's not letting us off, as in the case of David. He's not letting us off. He's executing the penalty due to my sin against Jesus. And God then is, is, is still just because he has done more than I can pay in crucifying Jesus. So I can never pay that debt off. It's like having a credit card. When do you ever pay it off? You know, uh, I thought when I first got credit cards, well, if I just pay the minimum payment, well, I'll get this paid off in time. And, mm-hmm. It's not the way it works. <laughs> it, just get, it just gets bigger and bigger. Yes? Well, I keep adding to my debt every day without Jesus. But he paid an infinite penalty. Did I tell you about the song that we sang in a chapel meeting in India one time? Did I tell you about that? My first trip to India, we stayed at a at a uh, the Catherine Booth Memorial Hospital in extreme South India. Uh, do you any of you know Andrew Spurgeon? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, it was just where his dad, where Andrew grew up, and where his dad came from. Uh, we were staying in the in the hospital, and it's it's um, since it's Catherine Booth. I don't know whether you know that name, but uh, her husband was the founder of Salvation Army. Uh, they're a Wesleyan organization, and 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 folks, they're doing some good work in India. I'll tell you, uh, I'm just excited about what they're doing. But uh, they have a chapel. They asked me to speak in chapel for one week, five days. Uh, I was. I didn't know the song they were singing, and I, I, I had a hymnal, but I didn't know the number, so I didn't look it up, and I wasn't singing. I was just thinking through what I was going to say, and as I was thinking about it, I somehow the, the, what they were singing kind of filtered through the fog of my mind, and they were saying something to this effect. I was so stunned, I never even thought to ask, well, what song was that, and can, can I copy it down? Uh, but the, the, the idea was... Um, we're so thankful for what Jesus has done for us on the cross. He's paid for our sins. But you know you can out-sin out the grace of God. Uh, and there's some sins that God just didn't pay pay the penalty for in Jesus. And so if you out-sin the grace of God, then the penalty has to come back on you and you will bear it. And I, I was so stunned at it, I could hardly even think. Uh, and I thought, well, what... What kind of view of the atonement is there that would allow that that way of thinking? I don't know how they would explain it. So I'm putting words in their mouths, and that's unsanitary. So, But um, how long was Jesus on the cross? Six. About six hours. If you die and have to pay the penalty of your sin, how long is it going to take? Eternity. So six hours, eternity. How could six hours pay for eternity? Do you follow this? 
And I thought, what is it that they're missing in the work of Jesus? And I, th- I, I finally decided what they're missing is the nature of the person who pays the penalty. Uh, if I must pay it, I'm finite. And I have wronged an infinite person, so the penalty that is due to me is an infinite penalty. So I can never pay it off. I will always be paying it, but never paying it off. But Jesus dies not solely as a human. He, as an infinite person himself, can bear the infinite wrath of God without reference to time. The time is not an issue once you start talking about infinity. Does this make sense to you? So he can sap for us all the power of the wrath of God. It is completely atoned for. Yes? And and we are in right relationship with God because of what Jesus has done. So for the demonstration of his righteousness, even though he justifies him who has faith in Jesus. So how can, if you ask, how can God declare a sinful person in right relationship with himself? The answer is Jesus' cross. He, he dealt with everything I would have to face, and there is nothing less left for me to face. In effect, we're going to return to this in chapter 8 at verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Does this make sense to you? you, you some of you are really staring at me hard. It, are there some questions in your minds? Well, okay, all right. So, now, verse 27. Where then is boasting? Let me go on here a bit. Um, Where then is boasting? It is excluded. On what sort of principle? And by the way, the word for principle here is law. Because he's, he's, he's really working on this law and grace, law and faith issue. So he's, he's using a word that in English doesn't make any sense. Um, uh, where then is boasting? It's excluded on what sort of law? Law doesn't exclude boasting. Law includes boasting. Right? So in, 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 in English, I have to say something like principle. A Greek speaker would have known immediately the, the difference between the two senses of the word. Where then is boasting? It's excluded on what kind of principle? On the work, uh, on the principle of works? Uh, my favorite prof- professor described testimony meetings as bragamoti meetings. <laughs> but we used to have testimony meetings. You, you remember this. Uh, and uh, I heard about a fellow one time who got up in the in a testimony meeting and he said, when when... I got saved, God did his part, and I did my part. And, I, and he's, the person who was telling this thought, oh my goodness, what is he going to say? He said, God did all the saving, and I did all the sinning. <laughs> uh, so, can works, can, can works exclude boasting? Well, no, because I did that. Um... But it's the, it's the principle of faith that explo- excludes boasting. If I'm trusting Jesus, then it's faith 
that means there's nothing for me to boast in except in Jesus, or as Paul says it elsewhere, in the cross of Christ. Um, For we consider that one is justified by faith without works of law. We, We are declared in right relationship with God, not because we have kept his commandments, but because of uh, uh, because God who is faithful is is the one who has declared us righteous um, we have brothers and sisters who are and I, I'm going to tread on some unsafe un, un, uh, ground here a moment we have brothers and sisters who are very reformed and they, they will say, yes, of course this is true, but grace always produces works. And I will say, in, um, in ideal circumstances, yes. But most of us don't live in ideal circumstances. So they don't want to go very long in saying we're saved by grace without throwing works in there somewhere. So if you don't have, and I've, I, you've heard, I've heard people say, if you don't have growing obedience in your life, there's a good chance you're not even saved. You need to go back and examine your life and see, well, where precisely does the Bible say that? We're, we're, we're begotten for good works. That doesn't mean that necessarily we'll do them. Why not? Well, there are all kinds of reasons. Uh, you've, you've all seen pictures of children that are malnourished and you know what the effect of malnutrition is on the maturation of any child into into adolescence and into adulthood yes does that mean that the child is not a full human well no but that child is not Doing what adults ought to be doing, yes, is is uh, troubled at some fundamental levels. Am I right? The issue for us is, folks. First of all, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know uh, what it would look like if we all came in dressed according to our spiritual maturity <laughs> instead of our physical maturity. Are you with me? So who would be wearing diapers still? You know, uh, um, me could be. I don't know. I don't know where I am spiritually. Do you know where you are exactly? Where you are in your maturation? Um, the the issue then, folks, is uh, if if you were. If you're a child of God and you were raised in a, com- in a community where the message was Sunday by Sunday, uh, you're not doing well enough, you need to rededicate your life and, and really get committed to Jesus, and uh, you need to get saved, and um, if you're saved and you, you need to get right, you need to come and rededicate your life. You've got to do better. That's the, that's the environment I was raised in the first 20 years of my life. Um, well, folks, that's not even pablum. It turns out to be actually poison. 
Am I making sense to you? And so I was way behind where I, where I would like to have been at age 20, spiritually. Um, and it's, it took me from then till 1985. That would have been, I was 38 at that time. So it took me another 18 years to get to a point where I was actually beginning to grow. But it wasn't do better that got me there. It was <laughs> the teaching of the book of Romans. By having to talk about Romans and answer questions, I came to understand that we're, we really are right in God's eyes. God has created a new reality about you when he declares that you're in right relationship with, you, with him. Uh, God's word creates new reality. And if he says you're justified, then you're justified. But I've got so much sin in my life. Yeah, of course you do. The only kind of people God justifies are sinners. He doesn't justify anybody else. So of course you've got sin in your life. There is therefore now no condemnation to, to those who are in Christ Jesus. Yeah, but God's not very happy with you because you sin. I, no, <laughs> no. God loves you the way he loves Jesus. John 17, 23. Um, John 17 is, is, the, is the real Lord's Prayer. <laughs> and you've heard this before. Uh, but it's, it's a prayer primarily about the unity of his followers. The, the, key, the key quality of the community of Christ is that there's unity there. And if there's disunity, there's something wrong. Uh, the key quality is not being obedient. The key quality is seeking reconciliation with one another because we're reconciled to God, then how can I not be reconciled with you? Do you follow this? So John 17, 23 starts, I in them, you in me, that they may be perfected in unity. And there are two results that flow from that. First result is, it gives credibility to the gospel. That the world may know that you have sent me. You see the community of Christ unified, reconciliation at work in the community. Then you, the world will know that God has sent Jesus. And that second thing that flows from that reconciled community is, and that you have loved them even as me. What does even as mean? The same. The same. Uh, well, God loves you, but he doesn't like you. Does God love Jesus, but he doesn't like him? No. Uh, so, folks, we, we are, as, as one little boy said to Donald Barnhouse, do you remember that name? Oh, goodness. Uh, Dr. Crichton loved Barnhouse, and Mrs. Crichton hated him. <laughs> but but uh, is she still living? I, I have not heard. Don't think so. Okay. Um, Barnhouse said he was preaching from Romans one Sunday and talking about all these things. And he It was 10th Presbyterian Church in, in Philadelphia. And 10th, is that right? Yeah, I know. <laughs> uh, so uh, he was preaching about this, and, and he said there was a huge balcony uh, in the church, and, and way over here on the left 
right at his eye level on the platform was this little street urchin who had gotten into the service, and he was just sitting there, kind of taking everything in. And and when Barnhouse went to the back of the auditorium to greet the people on the way out, this little urchin came up to him and he said, "I was a great preacher, a sermon preacher." <laughs> Barnhouse was a was a, a graduate of the Sorbonne, <laughs> a doctorate from the Sorbonne, and here's this little street urchin. That was a good good sermon preacher. <laughs> Barnhouse very kindly said, well, thank you, young man. He said, we sure are sitting pretty, aren't we? <laughs> and that's one of the most theologically significant thoughts I've ever had. We sure are sitting pretty. <laughs> uh, so, um, uh, where, where then is boasting? It's excluded. On what sort of principle? Of works? No, but on the principle of faith. For we consider that one is justified by faith without works of law. If it takes works of law, um, have have Gentiles ever been under the Mosaic law? No. No. Except those who wanted to live in the land of Canaan with Israel. Then they had to buy into the the Mosaic law. But, But Gentiles as Gentiles have never been under the Mosaic law. Uh, so if we have to be justified by the works of the law verse 29 says he asks a question and the answer would be yes if we're justified by law is he the God of the Jews only and of course the answer is no but if we were justified having to be justified by law he'd have to be the God of the Jews only uh Is he not also of the Gentiles? Yes, also the Gentiles, since there is one God who will justify the circumcision by faith and the uncircumcision through faith. Um, We do not annul the law by faith. I'm sorry, we don't annul the law by faith, do we? Of course not. We establish the law. And we're going to have to ask a question, and that's going to be a question that's going to we're going to address uh, in five to eight. How, how does the how do we fulfill the law as as we go through this? Do you have any questions? Yes, sir. Uh, unpack by faith versus through faith. I don't know what to do with that. Um, sometimes writers in especially in the New Testament will use a different word just for variety. And I don't know whether it's for variety or if, there, or if there's something other uh, going on. I, I, I don't know. Um, I hate to say that, but for, I, I'm, I'm learning to say I know I don't know more frequently these days. <laughs> um, I wish I could answer your question. Well, chapter four then, uh, chapter four, one to twenty-five, all scripture. And particularly the experience of Abraham testifies that right relationship with God is by faith. So what he's going to do in chapter 4, let me look down here, uh, down through uh, verse, how far? 12. What he's going to do first is show that Abraham is righteous by works, by faith. (laughs) Yikes. (laughs) Abraham is righteous by faith. Then, in the latter part of the chapter, beginning at verse uh, 13 and going to 25, he's going to show us what faith is. 
Uh, so what does the faith that is right relationship with God, what does that look like? So we'll see that uh, illustration at the end of the chapter. Um, so first, in verses 1 to, what did we say, 1 to 12, um, proof that justification is by faith. <clears throat> um, let's see, I'm a little behind on the PowerPoint here. Oh, I, I don't know whether we've dealt with law yet. Have we dealt with the definition of law? Let's talk about that shortly. Have we done that, Terry? Yeah. Okay. It's done showing in my notes yet. All right. Uh, let me just put this up on the screen here. Law has three characteristics. It includes commands and prohibitions. Uh, it includes penalty. And it's generally intended to be applied to a class, not to one individual. I had to change my statement. I, I didn't. I, I had a different way of saying it. It's a, it's meant for a class and not for the individual. But a lawyer in my Sunday school class in Frisco, Texas, one day clarified something for me. Legislatures do, from time to time, make laws for individuals. For example, he gave this example. Uh, you have you have immigration law, and there are classes of people who are not permitted to immigrate into our country. Yes? All right. So, um, but the government knows of an applicant for, for a visa who they want to be in the country, but he would be excluded or she would be excluded by current law. So the legislature might make a law permitting that person only to come in. Does that make sense to you? So there, but generally speaking, you don't make laws for a physician, you make laws for the medical community. You don't make laws for a businessman, you make laws for the business community. Does that make sense to you? So, um, the the commandments of the New Testament are not law, and these this is why. The commandments of the New Testament are something different. So, I, they do include commands and prohibition, but not every command is a law. Blow out the candles. That's a command. Yes? Yes. But none of us would think of that as a law. Yes? Um, there are commandments, there are things that are stated as commandments in Scripture that are not law. Be filled in the Spirit. Uh, think about that. Now, I've just opened a can of worms, and I shouldn't have done it, but it was the one that, that first appeared to my mind. That's an imperative in Greek. It is in English, too. But, folks, be filled is passive. That is, you don't do it. Someone else does it. So how do you fulfill that commandment. It's really not a law. Are you with me? What are you thinking? Uh, I'm still grasping. Go ahead. Okay. So, it's not something we're supposed to do because I can't. I can't do a passive. 
be hit by the ball. Stand in there and be hit by the ball. Well, we would we would state that differently in English. If you're the coach and you need to get somebody on base or you've got the bases full and you're not sure that the next batters are surely going to get a hit, but you urgently need at least one run, you might say, lean into the ball, let it hit you. Are you, are you with me here? I don't know whether that would even be legal or not. And I, given baseball, who knows? But... <laughs> but but that would that would be the the best I can I say. Allow yourself to be full in the spirit. Are, are you with me here? Or express your fullness in the spirit. Um, it's a it's a different idea than most of us have thought about. the The issue here then is that's a command, but it's not a rule. It's not a law. Does that make sense to you? Because there's no penalty. Um, so SLJ is. S. Lewis Johnson, Jr., uh, my favorite professor. <laughs> uh, without penalty, law is just good advice, he said. If there's no penalty, what are the penalties for not obeying the commandments of the New Testament as a child of God? What are the penalties? Given the conversation that we had three weeks ago, do you even remember it? The difference between discipline and punishment is that punishment only looks to satisfy justice. It doesn't care about the effect upon the convict. Discipline only looks to the effects on the wrongdoer. It doesn't try to satisfy justice. The goal is to help the, the, the immature grow to maturity. Am I making sense to you? So if that's the case then there is no penalty for not fulfilling the commandments of the New Testament. Discipline. But folks, uh, the key, key, do you remember the key passage on discipline in the New Testament? It's Hebrews 12, 4 to 11. Crucial passage. Um, turn there. I see some of you doing it anyway. So, um, Hebrews 4. Hebrews 12, verse 4. Um, what's the first word in verse 4 in your text? In. in. Say again. In. 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 Verse 4. Yeah. Hebrews 12. Struggle. Oh, okay. Um, some Bibles will have probably the word for there. Let me see. Uh, yeah. Some of our translations might have the word for. You have not yet struggled to the point of shedding blood. Well, why would he even bring that up? Shedding blood? As a sacrifice. Okay, why Why would he bring that up, though? Because without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Yeah, but not our blood. Well, okay. You forced me into it. What you got to understand is I got a doctorate from Dallas Seminary and I know great and wise things most people don't know. And one of the things I know is that if there's a verse 4, there's a verses 1, 2, and 3. Anybody shed blood in verses 1, 2, and 3? Yeah. You know? Why? Because he was bad? No. No? Why? It says he uh, endured it for sinners. Yeah. So suffering was in Jesus' life. Suffering is going to be in our life. Yes? 
if Jesus suffered, the people who walk his, his pathway are going to be suffering. Uh, look there. What, what verse? Where this is, I thought it was in this passage. Though he was a son, and I can't now even think about where it is. I've, I've lost the rest of the context. Jesus was disciplined. Are you with me here? No. Yes. Yes. Because discipline for us is always punitive, and the way we think about discipline is always punitive. It's five eight. Five eight. Uh, Hebrews five eight. Read it. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Thank you. That's exactly what I wanted. Though he was son, he learned obedience. Jesus learned obedience? Because he was bad? Well, no. But he was immature as a boy. Yes or no? Yes. He was never disobedient, but he didn't always know what obedience should be in a given situation. He's got to grow up. If Jesus endured discipline, then are we going to have to endure discipline? Is it punitive for Jesus? No. Then it's not punitive for us either. What was it for? Why? Why do you? Why did you make your children? Uh, I think all of us probably have children who are grown now. Uh, why did you have your children do chores around the house so you wouldn't have to do them? My son said the only reason to have a teenage son is to mow the lawn. I said, that's pretty much right. <laughs> <laughs> and then he moved away and <laughs> didn't mow the lawn anymore. Uh, so why did you have them do chores? Build character. Say again? Build character. Build, what kind of character is built by mowing the lawn? You're learning to live in a community. You're learning obedience. You're learning to live in a community, and everybody has to take part. Yes, for this thing to work, we had we had three children, and for everything to get done, we had to have all three of them pitching in in some way or other. And it wasn't. It was probably more than you wanted, but uh, it was. Uh, there was always still more to be done. Yes or no? So did Jill cut the yard? No, Jill didn't ever do that. <laughs> that was yeah, she was not a son. <laughs> uh, so they, the point is, folks, you want them to grow up as responsible adults. And you, they don't learn to be responsible unless they're given responsibility and hold, held to it. Am I, am I right? right? I, do, do you follow? What are you thinking? Well, I'm thinking that's true for humans, but this is, you're talking about Jesus. But Jesus was a true human. So in the in the manger, I think I've done this before. In the manger, when the when the shepherds were there and the star was overhead, Jesus sat up in the in the manger and he said, "Hello, mother. Hello, Joseph. I cannot call you father. I have one father, even God. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for they shall see God." And and we laugh about that because it's silly, but the reason it's silly is he was a true human baby whose human mind was not able to process that kind of thought. 
Does that make sense to you? He is, he is himself, as a, as a divine person, infinite, with all of the attributes of God, but um, there's a great theologian from the 19th century, his name's William G.T. Shedd. He wrote a book, uh, a set called Dogmatic Theology. And in it, he has such a masterful treatment of, of the person of Christ. What does it mean for him to be both God and man? And his argument is that in Philippians, is it Philippians 2? Yeah. He humbled himself. Um, his his uh, making himself of no reputation or humbling himself occurs as the divine son determines to reveal through his human nature only what a human nature can reveal. So when the woman with the issue of blood creeps up behind him and touches the, gar- the hem of his garment, he feels the power a- a- activated, but he doesn't know who it is. He says to the disciples, who touched me? And, and Peter, Peter, the American among the disciples, said, what do you mean who touched you? Everybody's thronging against you. No, someone touched me. And so the woman is brought out uh, for very, very good and powerful purposes. Uh, Matthew 24 of that day and hour, no one knows, not the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Well, how can the Son not know the day of his own returning? Because as Son, he's not... I'm going to say something that's going to sound like heresy to some of you. He is not Son in, in his um, divine nature. He is Son in his human nature. In the divine nature, turn to John 1. This is an odd verse that we all know, but we, but we don't know. Uh, so, so, John 1, 1. Um, I thought we were going to get out of chapter 3 today. doesn't look like it. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was, in Greek, the Word was with the God. Okay, So, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with the God, and the Word was God. Uh, the difference between those two second and third statements is... The third one doesn't have a definite article with God. The third one is emphasizing the word's nature, his identity. Uh, later, we will hear about the Spirit. Yes? I, now, I've, I've talked to one of my colleagues at the seminary who's an old friend. I've known him for 40 years or longer. Um, and... Uh, I, I told him what I'm about to say. He teaches Trinitarianism. <laughs> so he's the authority, and I'm, I'm just kind of catching up with him. But I said, it's my opinion on the basis of John 1 that the proper titles of the three persons of the Trinity as Trinity, as God, are the, the God, the Word, and the Spirit. Do you notice that the Father and the Son have now personal relational terms? Applied to the Spirit does not yet. I wonder if the new heavens and new earth is where 
the Spirit will specifically be revealed in this personal form. As, as Jesus says later in the Upper Room Discourse, he will not speak from himself. He will take from, my, from what is mine and give it to you. Remember this? So, so this is the dispensation of the revelation of the Son. I'm sorry, the Word. Uh, the Old Testament was the, the dispensation of the revelation of the God, and the new heavens and new earth may be, and this is speculation, may be the dispensation of the revelation of the Spirit. But the word Son in John 1 doesn't show up until after we read um, verse 14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. Glory is of the only begotten of the Father. Of the Father. Note Father is, I think that's new here as well. Up to this point, it's been the God and the, and the Word, but now it's one who is only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testifies about him and cried out, this is the one of whom I spoke, the one who's coming after me. Uh, it has been before me because he is uh, over me. Uh, and of his fullness we have all received, and grace in place of grace, in addition to grace, because the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Um, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten, your text may say God or Son. I don't know which it is. Which, which do you have? The, um, majority of manuscripts read the, the only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father. The word Son doesn't even show up until after the resurrection is introduced. Do you follow this? Yes, no? So Jesus, as, as, this, as the Word knows the day of his return. But a human mind is finite. Even Jesus' human mind is finite. So only what the Father reveals to him or what he can reveal him, himself through his human mind is what he knows. But, but, he can't, but his human mind cannot be infinite. It cannot be omniscient. It's a human mind. No human mind is omniscient. Does this make sense to you? We've got some really odd things going on in what's called the hypostatic union, the, the, the union of two natures in one, with one person. How does that work? How does that function then? So going back to Romans 3, uh, we've got seven minutes. <laughs> uh, so is he the God of the, of the Jews only? No, also the Gentiles. Um, um, since there is one God who will justify the, the uh, circumcision by faith and the uncircumcision by faith, uh, then do we, do we annul the law by faith? Of course not. We establish the law. So uh, we're ready for chapter 4. How did we get into this about the Son? Uh, I don't remember. Uh, next week, when we get back together, in chapters 4, 1 to 12, we're going to be looking at the proof that righteousness is by faith. And this is critically important. This and chapter 5 are critically important here because Paul makes statements which, if we have wrong definitions, will lead us astray. They really will. And I had a wrong definition in Romans 5, and I could not, I couldn't see that it was wrong. I just knew that there was a contradiction in my reading of the text. 
I'm not saying there was a contradiction in the text. I'm saying there was a contradiction in my reading of the text, and I didn't know how to solve it till I realized that I had a bad definition. Uh, and I got, got it straightened out, and then, it, then the whole passage came alive for me. So these two passages are going to be so important. If you can possibly make it uh, for these discussions in chapters 5, 6, 7, and 8. And 6 and 7, folks, aren't talking about what you think they are. Um, carnal means what? What do we mean when we say someone's carnal? I know. You, well, yeah. Yeah. But, 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 what, we used to, we used to say they have backslidden. Yeah. Back yeah, that's right. Their faith. Yeah. So. Yeah. There's a sense in which that's not too far off, as a matter of fact. But normally, carnal means uh, maybe maybe not educated. I guess. Uh, well, the way I was raised, maybe you were raised differently, and I'm I'm be so glad if you were. But for us, uh, car- you carnal when you've got sin in your life. Yeah, Yeah, and so you got sin in your life, and you're carnal, and God just can't use you much. Uh, uh, the pastor I grew up under said, uh, you can be, you can sin enough that God's going to put you on the shelf, and you'll be useless to God. Yeah. And he derived that from what Paul says, I buffet myself. And I, it's actually I buffet myself. But, uh, I buffet myself lest having ministered to others, I myself become a castaway. All right, so, well, there it is. So you can sin enough that God will put you on your shelf and you, you won't lose your salvation because we were Baptists and we didn't do that. Right? But um, uh, you won't lose your salvation, but you'll be of no use to God. Um, but that's building on a definition of carnality that doesn't fit Romans 6 and 7. Um, one of the problems you're going to have is if you're reading the NIV, the NIV will will consistently translate flesh as sinful nature. Um, as far as I can tell, flesh is not sinful nature. I don't know anywhere in the Bible that teaches we have a sin nature, or a new nature for that matter. And I know it's that's a strange notion, <laughs> but... We can't. Sir, good. We have all sin. Yeah, we have all sin, but that doesn't mean I have a sin nature. Um, did any of you know Jerry Houghton? Yeah. Do you Do you remember him saying, "We're not in Adam in Christ. Are we butterworms, caterpillar, caterflies? Are we in between somehow the the stages of a of a caterpillar and a butter and a butterfly?" Do you remember him saying anything like this? Oh, goodness. I heard him say it on many occasions. I didn't hear him speak all that often. But we're, are we caterworms or butter, butter, butterworms or cutter, caterflies? I can't get it out. <laughs> he had it down. I can't get it. Uh, uh, we're not in between two worlds. We're e- in either the world as an, as an enemy of God or we're in Christ. Are you with me here? We're either in Adam or in Christ. Are you in Adam and in Christ at the same time? That's what Romans 5 and 6 are going to be about. Romans 5 is going to lay the foundation for chapter 6. And then chapter 6 is going to address this. So if you have sin, sinful nature or sin nature in Romans 6, 
just put flesh back in there and it'll be it'll be a lot better and we'll talk about this as we go it's going to be sometime before we get there as you see but folks we've got if if my view of Romans is right and I it could well be wrong it scares me to death in some senses I, I don't lose sleep over it but I, I just think I hope I'm not leading people astray but if what I'm saying is right uh, then I now understand why I have the present health spiritually that I do have if what I'm saying is wrong then I've been deceiving myself for since 1985 that's going on now 40 years um, and and that may well be the case. So uh, we're going to go through this material together. I'll lay out my case. You see where it comes out. You go back to the scriptures and figure out, is this really what's there or not? And then follow what the scriptures say, not what Allman says. But if you find what I'm saying in scripture, thank God and not Allman. So, all right, let's pray. Uh, Father, your ways are not our ways. And that, that just befuddles us because we want your ways to be our ways. What we must do is have our ways become your ways, that, that, that we must model ourselves against you. And, and not only how we behave, but how we think, because what we think determines what we do. So, Father, cause us to think your thoughts after, after you. Not because any teacher has said these things, but because your word says these things. And as we think your thoughts after you, then, Father, uh, it, is, it, it is what Paul's going to pray for his Roman readers, uh, that they will be renewed in their minds. Teach us to live the life of grace, the life characterized by the crucifixion of Christ, uh, determined by his character, determined by his uh, plan, determined by his work. And then, Father, it will be well with all of us. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen.